You know, one day, Christians are going to uh, take their final breath. Their heart is going to beat for the last time. They're going to step from this dimension into another. And they're going to be on that other side asking ourselves, did we fulfill what we were supposed to do? Did we do what we were supposed to do? You know, society lives for all kinds of silly stuff. And honestly, if you follow the news and current events and television and politics and entertainment, all, all kinds of silly stuff that people live for, but Christian people really get it, or at least we should. And we ought to know why we're here and what our mission is and ask ourselves, will we accomplish it by the time we die? Our Savior here was able to ascend up to heaven here in our text and to say, mission accomplished. Let's talk about it as we look at this passage here. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Well, for the last year or two, we have been studying the gospel of Mark, and we are down to the last dozen verses which we'll finish off today. So turn to Mark chapter 16, if you would. And as a side note, I just have to say this. There are some Bibles out there that don't have these verses in them. In fact, there are some Bible versions that claim that uh, these were brought in later. They weren't really authored by Mark under Holy Spirit inspiration. And to me, that casts a question mark over the Word of God. It puts doubt upon the Word of God. I believe all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. I don't know about you, but I believe that God means what He says. And if these 12 verses don't belong in the Bible, then it really ends abruptly. In fact, in chapter 16 and verse number 8, you find if that's where the Gospel of Mark is supposed to end, well, then the disciples are found afraid, uh, silent, tight-lipped, not giving out the message. But that's not true, because that's not where this gospel ends. There are some who claim that the oldest and the best manuscripts omit these 12 verses, and those are those that can be traced back to the text that is found in the Vatican. Uh, That's another story. But that's not even true either. Actually, you find these 12 verses in the the Byzantine text. You find them in the earliest translations. You find the early church fathers alluding to these 12 verses, so they belong in the Bible. In fact, there's something that all ancient Greek New Testament texts have in common, other than this one. They all disagree with the Textus Receptus, the King James Bible. And and I'm so thankful that uh, we have here the sword of the Spirit. Not a butter knife, but the sword of the Spirit here. And you can trust your Bible. Those other versions have taken a detour through Alexandria, Egypt, and that kind of tells you something right there. But you can rest assured this is God's Word, and these 12 verses belong in the Word of God. So let's take a look at them with that as a backdrop. Mark 16, beginning in verse number 9, says, Now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils, And she went and told them that had been with him as they mourned and wept. And they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. After that, he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it unto the residue, neither believed they them. Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. 
And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. Now it's been quite a ride as we've studied the gospel of Mark chapter by chapter and verse by verse and and, and looked at the three-year ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ upon this earth and what a ministry. But now we're going to sum it up with this title. Basically, it sums up what we see at this point, Mission Accomplished. Mission Accomplished. The Lord accomplished His mission. But the question is, what about us? Because we find here a handing off of a baton, if you will, from the Lord to us, a Scripture New Testament church, to get out there and finish the task, which isn't finished yet. And so will we be faithful, will we be found faithful like our Savior was, and one day be able to say, Mission accomplished. We'll be talking about that, but let's pray first, shall we? Father, we thank you now for this passage and the opportunity we have to look into the Word of God. We just pray now that you'd bless our time in your Word here today, and you'd speak to our hearts and accomplish your will in our lives, and we'll thank you for it all. In Jesus' name we pray and ask it. Amen. Years ago, the 92 Olympics were coming up, and they were holding trials for the Olympics, qualifying trials, and there was a young lady by the name of Beth Deciantis, who was trying to qualify for the marathon, 27 miles of running, if you can imagine that. To qualify for the marathon amongst the ladies, you had to do it in less than two hours and 45 minutes. Well, she got out there running. She knew she could do this. She was doing great. She was clipping along. But at the two-hour and 43-minute mark, she got into trouble. If you've ever been a runner, you know what this is like. And, and, and she was staggering. She was falling. She couldn't breathe. Her legs were killing her. And she collapsed to the ground at two hours and 43 minutes. Well, she was 200 yards from the finish line. <laughs> you can imagine that. I mean, she would have made it. She was 200 yards away. She lay there for 20 seconds, and she got up, and she ran a little bit more, but she collapsed again. She was a little bit closer, but she was less than a minute now from the qualifying time, and she just couldn't get up. Well, everybody was cheering her on, so she rose to her feet, and she staggered, and she fell, and she got up, and she fell again, and... She was at the five-yard mark from finishing the race at that time with 10 seconds left. And everybody was encouraging her on, but she just couldn't stand up. So she crawled across that finish line with three seconds left, and she qualified for the Olympics. Now, we call that perseverance, don't we? Perseverance. Seventy-five years ago, roughly, there was a, a, a lady, a, a gal born by the name of Wilma. Wilma had polio in her left foot. It was all twisted, and, and, and she couldn't walk without this, this brace on it and without this crutch. And, but through seven years of painful therapy, she finally got to where she could at least walk without the uh, brace. And at age 12, she tried out for the basketball team, but she wasn't good enough to make it. So she practiced, and she practiced, and practiced with a friend. And one day, the track coach came by and noticed how fast she was and said, you're, you're working on the wrong sport. You need to come out for track. So 
Wilma went out for the track team and found out she could beat everybody. She was only uh, 14 at the time. She was beating seniors, and pretty soon she was beating college gals, and, and pretty soon she was the fastest gals in the state. And in the 56 Olympics, she, she, uh, she, sponsored, she was sponsored and she performed for the U.S., but she, she uh, had a disappointing performance. And four years later, she tried again, and she won at that time the most gold medals for any woman, three gold medals. Wilma Rudolph did. You know, as you talk about Olympians, they, they will practice at least four hours a day, uh, 310 days a year, and uh, getting up early every morning and, and doing this for years and years in order to perform for moments, minutes at the most. And you would say, well, it's in the genetics, but it's more than that. There, there is training and training and training. In fact, a diver between the four-year Olympics will dive somewhere around 3,000 times. A gymnast will flip about 20,000 times in between Olympics, if you can imagine that, practicing. And swimmers will swim miles a day, up to 10 miles a day, if you can imagine that, 5 miles an hour. They just persevere with their hearts racing and beating at 160 beats a minute. They have one goal in mind, and that is mission accomplished. They want to win a medal. You know, life is a, uh, a funny thing. Recently, I... Uh, saw a little grandson come into the world, my third, my third grandson, little Miles. And uh, he was a preemie. You can see his little fist wrapped around my finger there, if you can imagine how tiny that hand was. He came home this last week, and and, uh, I got to hold him and feed him a bottle. And, and, uh, you know, the little heart is just beating. And I don't know, in a baby's heart, how rapidly it, it beats. But think about a heart beating for, say, 80 years, according to Psalm 90, and, and, and for 80 years, maybe 70 beats a minute, whatever it might be, adds up to about 3 billion heartbeats in a lifetime. And he's just beginning, if you can imagine that. 3 billion heartbeats in a lifetime. You know, one day, Christians are going to uh, take their final breath. Their heart is going to beat for the last time. They're going to step from this dimension into another. And they're going to be on that other side asking ourselves, did we fulfill what we were supposed to do? Did we do what we were supposed to do? You know, society lives for all kinds of silly stuff. And honestly, if you follow the news and current events and television and, and, and politics and entertainment and all, it's, it's as shallow as a birdbath. It's as shallow as a uh, pool of water about a half inch deep and uh, five miles long. All kinds of silly stuff that people live for. But Christian people really get it, or at least we should. And we ought to know why we're here and what our mission is and ask ourselves, will we accomplish it by the time we die? Our Savior here was able to ascend up to heaven here in our text and to say, mission accomplished. Let's talk about it as we look at this passage here. We see, first of all, what I call this confirmed substantiation. As we open in verse number 9, it says, Now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. Notice, he appears first to Mary Magdalene, somebody who had been demon-possessed. And yes, there is such a thing as demon possession. We don't see it as prevalent in a a country like this, but it does exist. But it's very obvious in third-world countries and other places, demon possession is real. And there are a number of ways to let the devil in, if I might put it that way. In Mary Magdalene's case, she was immoral we think, as far as we know, and and she let the devil in. Anyone can let the devil in. Anyone can give the devil an in, as we say. 
And, and lost people can be possessed, but saved people, I believe, can certainly be oppressed. And I find a number of warnings to believers to be vigilant, uh, lest the, uh, the enemy devour us and sift us as wheat. So certainly we can be attacked. Now, what was it that made Mary Magdalene so special? Why is she mentioned as the first one that, that Christ appears to and so on? I think it's this. I think she had a special love for the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we, we find this written in Luke seven forty seven. Her sins, Christ is talking, which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Now let me just state, we've all been forgiven a ton of stuff. <laughs> just that some people realize it more than others. Some people appreciate it more than others. Would we be listed amongst those who love much because we realize we've been forgiven much? If we really understood how much we've been forgiven, we would love the Lord more. And Mary Magdalene got it. She realized that the Savior had forgiven her for so much, she loved him. Now notice in verse number 10, it says, and she went and told them that had been with him as they mourned and wept. Boy, things looked bleak, things looked dark, things looked black, things looked bad, and they're mourning and they're weeping and they're not understanding. Really, they ought to be rejoicing. The victory's already been won, but there they are in mourning here. You know, I find... Jesus said this in John 16 and verse 20, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. And ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned unto joy. And your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. Here's the Savior saying, the world is going to rejoice. Yippee! He's dead. And God's people are going to mourn. But that thing's going to flip around. And when and, and the news breaks that Christ is out of the tomb, the world is going to go, oh, no. And God's people are going to go, wow. And that's exactly what happened. You know, it's just like our God to, to flip a, a situation around, to give us a reversal, if you will. This was the worst time of the lives of the Christians at that time. And here we find this complete, absolute reversal. And God can do that in our lives as well. We, we, we find this in Psalm 30, verse 5, that weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. If you're hurting today, if you're grieving, if, if you're lamenting, if, if you're burdened, if you're sorrowful, whatever it is, keep going, persevere. Joy cometh in the morning. I think that one of the blessings of serving the Lord is there's never a dull moment. I don't know about you. There is never a dull moment, and you can never tell when the Lord's going to turn that thing around. When you're in a Red Sea situation with uh, your face to the waters and your back to the enemy and nowhere to go and all of a sudden God parts the waters and, and makes a way, he specializes in that. Well, in verse number 12, it goes on in the narration. It says, after that, he, Christ, appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. And if you know the story of the uh, two disciples, one of them called Cleopas on the... Uh, road to Emmaus, you know that it's talking about that. This is later on in the day, and, and it says in verse 12 that he appeared in a, another form. They didn't recognize him. Remember that? I, I don't know exactly how that happened. I, I know he appeared in another form on top of the Mount Transfigured before the disciples. Uh, I know that in, in John 20 that he's on the, the uh, shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, and they knew him not as their fishing, and so he was able to do things like that. And I don't understand that fully here, but the important thing is this. There's no shortage of verses in the Bible that tell us he did rise, that he actually 
was alive, that, that he confirmed and substantiated his resurrection many times into many people after he rose from the dead. In Acts 13 and verse 31, it says, And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. We are witnesses unto the people. And so it was. Christ did rise from the dead, and there was the naysayers who say he really didn't, but there were so many witnesses that saw him afterwards. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, that after that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present. How do you explain that away? <laughs> at the same time, there's 500 people that all see him at the same time. And so you can rest assured, Jesus Christ came out of the grave, and there were those who witnessed it, and those who died for it, you wouldn't die for some hoax, would you? Christ really did rise from the dead. It was no hoax. So we see the confirmed substantiation. But secondly, we see this carnal skepticism, this incredible unbelief as we pick it up again. In verse 11, it says, And they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. Believe not. Incredible skepticism. Notice in verse 13. And they went and told it unto the residue, neither believed they them. Notice verse 14. Afterward he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. They didn't believe. We find this carnal skepticism. Now normally when we think of unbelief, we think of who? Thomas, right? Thomas doubting Thomas. My mother always said, don't be a doubting Thomas. We find in John chapter 20 and verse number 25, it says, The other disciples therefore said unto him, Thomas, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Notice it's a decision. I will not believe. Unbelief is a decision. And we might look at unbelief or doubt or lack of faith and go, you know, tisk tisk and smile about it. But let me just say this about it. The fact of the matter is, there's a problem with unbelief. It is very offensive to God. We minimize it, but unbelief is very offensive to God. We find examples in the Bible where the disciples didn't believe. In Mark 9, we saw it already. In verse 19, He answereth him and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Can you see the lamenting in the Savior's voice? Can you see the frustration almost? As he says, how long must I put up with this? That's what it means. How long must I suffer you? How long do I have to put up with this? And there's really a righteous indignation here on the part of Christ. He's not happy with his disciples. You say, well, had they committed immorality? Had they been drunk or whatever? No, no. They just didn't believe. They didn't believe. You know, the Bible tells us this in Hebrews eleven six, But without faith... It is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is. Can we look at this as divine displeasure? If I might call it divine frustration, divine irritation, whatever we might want to call it, it's a lack of faith to our Creator. And all this unbelief is a very, very insulting thing to God. We have to really see it for what it is. 
In fact, there are books, uh, they're out there and they've been written to debunk the Bible and debunk Christianity. And we just kind of look at it and go, oh, brother. But God looks at it, all this, this evolution and all this other stuff, and it's offensive to him. It's an offensive thing. I mean, really, the universe made itself. The human body made itself. The human eye formed itself. Are you kidding me? And yet it's promoted now as fact. It's an offensive thing. It's a carnal thing. It's carnal skepticism. God help us with our unbelief. We see the carnal skepticism. But thirdly, we see the church is sanctioning. Now, we pick it up in verse 15, and it kind of changes directions. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, what do we call this, folks? We call this the great commission, right? We see it over in Matthew 28. We understand that though all believers should be doing it, it really is primarily a sanctioning given to the local church. If we had time, we'd turn to Matthew 28, and I would show you how we know that, how we know the commission was given to the churches. But I believe also that individual Christians are given a command uh, and given a mandate to take the gospel to who? He says every creature. Everybody, absolutely everybody. You say, Pastor, how do we do that? Well, basically, if you can strike up a conversation with somebody and and talk about how to work your way to heaven, they would probably, for the most part, say, uh, it's by getting baptized and joining a church and taking communion and doing good things and not committing murder or sin or rape or whatever it might be. But that's where you take God's law. It's our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ and show them from the commandments They've placed other things ahead of God in violation to the the first commandment. They've uh, made a God of their own image in violation of the second commandment. They may have taken God's name in vain. Most people have. They may have dishonored their parents. They may have dishonored the Lord's day. They may have lusted. They may have hated. They may have coveted. They may have taken things that weren't theirs. They may have lied. And, and you take God's law and you show them that there's none righteous, no, not one. When they see it, that you cannot work your way to heaven, then they know they need the remedy. Then they realize why Jesus Christ came to this earth and shed his blood for our sins. Why he died on the cross for us. That's what we call taking the gospel to every creature. Then we give them the plan of salvation from the Bible. Once they know they're lost, then they can realize, I need a Savior. And and we call that soul winning, but really it's witnessing, it's fulfilling a responsibility. And and I just want to encourage all of us today to do more of that. I I know there's something missing in my life, spiritually speaking, when I haven't been faithful in that area, when I've just gotten too busy to do that, when I've passed by people and haven't talked to them about their soul. We find in verse 15 that he said unto them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Notice, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved but he that believeth not shall be damned. Now, there are those who believe that baptism takes you to heaven, and they use verse 16. And they say, see, baptism's a part of it here. He said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Well, look at the rest of the Bible. You're not redeemed with water. From Genesis to Revelation, it's blood, okay? There's only one thing that can wash sin away, and it's not Red River water. It's blood. It's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so baptism does not wash sin away, and a lack of baptism does not keep you out of heaven. Think of the thief on the cross. 
Jesus forgave him in his dying hours. He put his faith and trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross right next to him. And Jesus looked at him and he said, Verily this day thou shalt be with me in paradise, in heaven. Now, did that thief have a chance to get off that cross and go and get, get baptized? No. But he went to heaven nonetheless. So a lack of baptism does not doom you. What does? Well, you have to read the whole verse. Notice verse 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. So what is it that sends you to hell? It's not believing. He only mentioned the baptism there because that really meant you're taking a stand. I mean, it really did in those days mean you're taking a stand for Christ. Today, it's like no big deal. It's in vogue. But he probably even inferring those who mean business, those who have believed, will get baptized. And by the way, that's something to consider today. If, if you go, well, I'm a born-again Christian. I just don't want to uh, get baptized and join a Scripture Testament church. Oh, boy, I'll tell you what. That's not a good indication. But he says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. But notice the second half, so important. He doesn't say, but he that believeth not and is not baptized shall be damned. He simply says, he that believeth not shall be damned. Because the salvation comes with the believing. You just ignore that decision. You just ignore that commitment and you'll be damned. You don't, by the way, have to commit murder, go to hell. You don't have to be a Hitler or a Mussolini or a mafia guy. Uh, You don't have to rape or whatever it might be. Just ignore that decision. In fact, we find Christ say this in John 3.18. Speaking of himself, he says, He that believeth on him is not condemned. But notice this. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Somebody says, Preacher, what do I have to do in order to go to hell? Nothing. Nothing. He that believeth not is what? Condemned already. We're born into this world sinners. That's why we need a Savior. And we're condemned already. Well, let's move on to verse 17. Christ goes on in this commission. He says, And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. He goes on, he mentions some other signs. They shall take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it shall hurt them, and so on and so forth. May I say to you, friends, these were sign gifts given at that time in the first century while the gospel was getting off the ground to substantiate this Christianity thing, this sect of the Nazarene, if you will. And, and, and they were sign gifts to the Jews to help them believe until the Bible was completed. When the Bible was completed, the sign stuff was, I guess, given away. In fact, we, we read in 1 Corinthians 13, 10, that when that which is perfect is come, speaking of the completion of the Bible, then that which is in part made reference in that same chapter to these sign gifts shall be done away with. And they were. Even by 70 AD, this stuff was fading out of the picture. So don't go looking for signs. May I say that kindly? Please don't go looking for signs. Jesus said that a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after signs. Don't be a sign seeker. The devil will have one for you. Here's what we find about saved people. In Romans 1.17, it says, The just shall live by what? Faith. The just shall live by faith. We've already seen Hebrews 11.6, right? Without what? It's impossible to please him. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. And we also read in Romans 14.23 that whatsoever is not of faith 
is sin. I believe it's a sin to even go seeking all that other stuff because whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Now, in verse number 18, it also mentions something. I just got to mention this. Christ says they shall take up serpents. There are snake handlers out there. You heard of them? They're in the Appalachians and places like that. And, and they equate spirituality with daring to, to play with poisonous snakes. And if they get bit, surviving it, and that's a miracle. And a lot of them have died doing it. Again, don't do that stuff. In fact, we, say, we see Christ saying this in Matthew 4, 7. Jesus said unto him, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. He told that to the devil, by the way. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 6. And so don't go messing with the poisonous snakes and the signs and the wonders and all that kind of thing. That's all passed off the scene at this point. We see, as we've said already, the confirmed skepticism, the carnal, or the confirmed substantiation, the carnal skepticism, the church's sanctioning, and finally and quickly and last of all, the Christian steadfastness. In verse number 19, it says, So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. This is all described in Acts chapter 1. He led them out and he ascended up to heaven and the cloud covered him and so on. In verse 20, it says, And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. So they went forward witnessing what they had seen. They went forth as witnesses. Now, two observations quickly. And one is, I think the happiest Christians are those who share their faith. Witnessing Christians, there's just something about that. Witnessing. And, and taking the, the Word of God and, and taking even the law of God and, and showing people their need of Christ. I, I think that's so important. And there are many who believe in Jesus with a head knowledge, but have never received Him with their, their heart with their will. And that's where the confusion lies. They can never get past that. And if we could just go and explain why Christ died on the cross and point out to them what sin is to God, I think they would see it in many cases. Now, two believers, two believers remember verse 15 where he says unto us, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Notice the go. The go in the Great Commission. We have to go. And again, soul winning sounds like it's our responsibility to get their soul saved. But witnessing is simply saying, you have fulfilled your responsibility. Christ told us to witness. In Acts 1.8, he says, you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Same scenario here, but Luke describes it for us over in Acts. And he says, Christ says, just witness. Start in Jerusalem. Start at work. Start in your neighborhood. Maybe get to know some of your neighbors, uh, relatives, whatever it might be. Uh, Remember, by the way, how lost you were before you got saved. Sometimes we're born in a china shop. Remember to be gracious and remember to be tactful and remember to be appropriate and remember to be uh, compassionate as we witness to the lost. By the way, there are some who equate compassion with uh, feeling sorry for uh, sick people or caring for someone who's sick, and, and, and that's all fine. But I believe a far greater compassion is keeping somebody out of hell forever. That's really where we show our compassion. In, in Jude, it says in verse 22, and of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. You ever thought about that? Ever thought of the wording of that? It talks about having compassion, making a difference, saving with fear, 
and then pulling them out of the fire. That's really a good picture of where they're at. They are uh, one foot in the fire and, and uh, the other on a banana peel and, and ready to go out into eternity and, and to go to hell forever. And if we're going to have compassion, we need to save them from the fire. So my first observation is that witnessing Christians are really the happiest ones. But my second one is this, and it's so important. It's really the message. Jesus Christ finished his mission. Jesus Christ finished his mission. Now it's our turn. Folks, we have one shot, really. We have one life. I hope we're not squandering that life. I hope we're not living cold spiritually. I hope we're not living offended and and bitter because the judgment seat of Christ is coming for every born-again Christian. And we're going to stand eye to eye with our Savior. Now remember this. Jesus Christ finished strong. Our Savior finished strong. What about us? Did he have opposition as he ministered at his time? You know, there's a verse that has come to mean a lot to me. It's found in Hebrews 12, 3, and it says, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Isn't that powerful? Consider him. And then this part, which endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. You ever felt that contradiction of sinners against yourself? I mean, it's just relentless. It is just ongoing. And you, you just want to tell people, stop that or go away or quit causing trouble. This contradiction of sinners. Well, the Bible says, consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, far greater than what we endure. It says, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. You know, I, I see Christians fainting. I see Christians getting offended. I, I see Christians quitting on the Lord and his church who really need to memorize this verse along with me. Consider him which endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Why? Lest we be wearied and faint in our minds. Oh, what he put up with. <laughs> oh, what he put up with. Can we put up with it? Well, we followed our Savior through the Gospel of Mark, but today we see him ascended up on high, and we see mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. It's over with, with our Lord's mission on this earth as far as that goes, his 30-year mission. But the question is, what about us? What about us? Do we have this steadfastness? Where is the Christian's steadfastness? In Acts 13 and in verse number 43, it says, Many of the Jews followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. You know, we could talk about all the things Paul could have said to those early believers, but what did they persuade those Christians to do? To continue. Isn't that simple? To continue in the grace of God. The Bible speaks of running with patience, the race set before us. And in Galatians 6 and in verse number 9, it says, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. We shall reap if we faint not. How many have heard of George Mueller? A Christian who lived in the 1800s. He actually uh, was not really a preacher so much as a man who loved uh, little orphans and, and started orphanages in the area of Bristol, England. And, I mean, helped kids by the thousands. But he was known most of all for his prayer life. If you can ever read his biography, read it. He was a man of prayer. Early on in his life, he determined he had five very close friends and he was going to pray every day for them to be saved. And he did. Well, he prayed for some months and one of them got saved. Amen. This is easy. 
But he prayed another 10 years before two more of them got saved. And then he prayed uh, for 25 years for the fourth one, and he got saved. What about that fifth one? He was a holdout. Mueller continued to pray. And actually, he prayed for 52 years, and then he died. (laughs) Praying for this guy, and the guy wasn't saved. He got saved at Mueller's funeral, if you can imagine that. We call that perseverance. And in due season, we shall reap if we faint not. Back in 1972, NASA sent up this space probe, little satellite. It was called Pioneer 10, and its mission was to go to Jupiter and photograph it and send back information, which was unbelievable. Jupiter's way out there, and they'd never been really past Mars. So they sent out Pioneer 10. They thought it would be destroyed in the asteroid belt of of, uh, Jupiter, but it got past it. And a little over a year later, it passed by Jupiter, mission accomplished, but it kept going and going and going to the edge of the solar system and, until it was a billion miles away from the sun, if you can imagine that. And it, it passed Saturn. And then it, it went 2 billion miles, and it passed Uranus and, and Neptune, and it went 4 billion miles, and it passed Pluto, and the years ticked off, and, and, and 25 years later, it was found 6 billion miles from the sun, still sending back a signal, most amazingly, on a little 8-watt transmitter, about a little bigger than the nightlight in your home. It's still sending back this this little 8-watt signal, and it just kept going. Folks, we all have 8-watt abilities, I would imagine, don't we? We all have a little something that, that we could use for the Lord. May I share some quotes with you? There aren't any hard and fast rules for getting ahead in the world. Just hard ones. Isn't that the truth? Quit looking for that quick shortcut. Also, you don't have to lie awake nights to succeed. Just stay awake days. (laughs) There's a novel thought. Here's another one. Someone said there's no poverty that can overtake diligence. God help us to just be diligent. Spurgeon said this. He said, by perseverance, the snail reached the ark. Amen. And then somebody said that triumph is just oomph. Added to try. And that the truth. I like those. Former Prime Minister of England, David Lloyd Jones, said, There's nothing so fatal to character as a half finished job. And that is true. A half finished job. Folks, we haven't finished the job yet. Christ finished his mission here, but we still have a job to do here. I like the postage stamp. It, 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 uh, it sticks to one thing until it gets there. And folks, we're not there yet. Let's, let's stick to it, okay? You ever felt like Christ? Christ had opposition. And yet we'll go back to that verse again. Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. He didn't quit, did he? Until he finally was able to say, It is finished. It is finished. He finished his task, and it was mission accomplished. We read in John 20, 21, Then said Jesus unto them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. Notice what he says just before he leaves. After finishing the task, he says, As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. Now, folks, one day we're going to take our heavenly flight, We're going to pass beyond, and we're going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. Will we be able to say we did our best? Lord, I did my best. I did my very best. You know, Paul went through the ringer, and 
And yet he said, I finished my course and I kept the faith. And I look at that and I say, God help me. You know, there have been multitudes since then that have finished their course and they have kept their faith. Sadly, there have been a lot of casualties that we can think of as well. Finish strong. Finish faithful like our Lord. God help us one day to be able to say, mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Puppet Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.